0: TV comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. Trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. Fantastic! So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic.
1: I'm George Shapiro, and I love, I'm listening to, and I'm dedicated to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. <laughs> perfect. I thought that was good. <laughs> good. Perfect. I, I, did you feel my passion? I did. Yes. Very much <laughs> so. I got a tear in hi, hi. Okay, yeah. go oh, my eye. Okay. I'm going to go because they're going to tell my car away. Thank you. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a former stand-up comedian, an occasional actor, a producer, a documentarian, a mockumentarian an Emmy-winning writer and director of some of the most successful and audacious comedy features in the history of the medium. He's written for popular TV shows like Entourage, Fridays, Mad About You, Dilbert, The Tick, and, of course, Seinfeld, writing or co-writing some of the shows most memorable and most bizarre episodes including the opera, the bris, the bubble boy, the outing, and also helped coin the phrase, not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) As a director, he's helmed classic episodes of his friend Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm, as well as the feature films Masked and Anonymous, Army of One, Bruno, Religious, The Dictator, and one of the most original and most profitable movies of all time, Borat. His newest project coming to Netflix on February 15th is Larry Charles' Dangerous World of Comedy in which he travels to some of the world's most perilous destinations in search of humor. Frank and I saw the first episode and our jaws are still on the floor. Well, I saw the whole thing. Frank only saw the fragger. Yeah, he's such a he's not a professional. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome to the podcast one of the great comic minds of his generation, a man who shares our love of classic comedy teams, and a man who once had the life-altering experience when Jack Nicholson smiled at him from a passing car. The brilliantly talented Larry
0: Charles. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. I'm humbled by that introduction, and I'm actually exhausted by it as well. That's our goal, Larry.
2: Thank you. To wear the guest out early.
0: And you could use it for your obituary, too, when
1: needed. (laughs) It's perfect. It's perfect. Now, the first thing I wanted to ask you is I'm not a sports fan, and I never watch the Super Bowl, but now there's some Jewish... um, a hero uh, football
0: player. Julian Edelman. Julian Edelman, of course. I mean, I think this, you know, you remember? I don't remember if you remember when we were kids, there was a player on the Mets named Al Weiss. Sure. Second yeah. baseman. All, all the Jewish kids in Brooklyn wanted to, you know, take credit for him as a Jew in baseball. But, of course, he was German and just had a name that was kind of sounded Jewish. I, I don't even believe. If you ever watch Edelman, he looks like a white supremacist. <laughs> he, act, he acts like a white supremacist. His his girlfriend is a white supremacist. I really, I don't know. I know he identifies as a Jew, but I just, I'm skeptical. That's all. <laughs> wow.
1: So, so we should proceed with caution. Absolutely. Yeah, starting the show with an
0: Al Weiss reference. <laughs> don't let Don't let him into the minion without really checking his uh, penis. That's and, all I'm saying.
1: And then there's those those other celebrities who have been uh, called Jews but were never were, like um, well, <laughs> oh Joe Namath, a lot of people thought was a Jew. Uh, Michael Oh Michael Caine, uh-huh. uh, not a Jew. Uh, Who er, thought Michael Caine was a Jew? A couple of people, because his so name it? is
0: Morris. Morris, yes, <laughs> Morris. There you are. I have two <laughs> Uncle Morrises. I, I would, I would believe that. And people thought Ringo was a Jew. <laughs> this is all about the nose, isn't it, Gilbert? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <you> t- <laughs> oh, all these guys you mentioned have very prominent proboscis. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so I, I, I was. Watching the Dangerous World of Comedy, uh, Frank watched like five minutes. No, I watched it. the whole first
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> I was busy doing the research. You won't do. <laughs> he was waiting for a commercial. It never came. Yeah.
1: So now, and and this this deals with one of those subjects that I I always like to talk about, like the connection between you know tragedy and horror. With comedy and how the Absolutely. two just
0: go together. Well, I, I part of my thing always in my life in terms of comedy has been to look for things that really aren't funny and then well, move you it like found it on this show and suddenly it's uh, it becomes comedy and I and. I thought to myself at this point in my life, what could I do that kind of is my honest, authentic version of that now? That's not fictional, it's not artificial, it's not contrived, what could I do? What can I do? And I, I thought, you know, I've been to a lot of these crazy foreign countries, sometimes in the midst of great turmoil, And I always meet comedians in all these places, Uruguay and all these strange Argentina, strange countries, Romania, Morocco, there's always comedians. In fact, Morocco has a stand-up comedy uh, festival. So I thought, wow, these people, I get to go home and I get all these accolades, but these people have to stay in sometimes very oppressive regimes. And how do they do their comedy? How do they survive? And that was my initial uh, kind of uh, challenge to myself to figure that out.
1: Well, it 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 always gets me when I'll hear people say like, "Oh, you know, it's really tough now, you know, because uh, Trump has a dictatorship." And you going <laughs> right. when you go to a real dictatorship.
2: Yes, it's... he's doing his best, Gilbert. Yeah, <laughs> give him a chance. Well, but I,
0: but you're absolutely right. I mean, the the stakes are very different in American comedy. Uh, than, than they are in a lot of other countries, especially these war-torn countries. I mean, I was in Iraq and Saudi Arabia. I was in uh, Liberia, as you mentioned, and yeah. Somalia, which is one of the most dangerous places on earth, a place that I probably should not have gone to, quite frankly, was that dangerous and that absurd uh, to be there for me. But there are comedians there, and there are comedians who have been assassinated there. And most comedians in Somalia who uh, who who insist and it's kind of like their mission, uh, their calling to continue doing their comedy, they live with that risk of uh, of being uh, gunned down by some assassins. And many of them have had the experience of being kidnapped or tortured. And they go back and they do their comedy, and that to me is very courageous. And I was bowled over by that kind of. Uh, it's, it felt like the opposite of what American comedians would do under those conditions. You know,
2: wasn't there one in Iraq too? It was in Hassan the one that was assassinated in 2006?
0: The, yes, there, there was a, a very famous uh, comedian assassinated in Iraq also. And if you start to look deeply, I mean, look at Saudi Arabia right now. Yeah. It's very. The, uh, there's a comedian in Saudi Arabia who I interviewed who's not in the show actually. Uh, who's known as the Seinfeld of Saudi Arabia, and he has currently been arrested and detained and is in prison and kind of out of contact with people. So th- life changes very quickly there. So, yes, here we have Trump. We have some oppression. We have some fear of what the future might hold. But but right now, as it stands, you and I can say anything we want right now on this show, and nothing's going to happen to us. And that's that's one of the advantages of being here.
1: Yeah, it's like like they talk a lot about, you know, Kathy Griffin with the photo holding Trump's head. And you go, look, look, she's in loads of trouble. And it's like she's
0: still working.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: She's got a nice house, whatever. She's free. Uh, Being free is not an assumption that a lot of these comedians can make. They're often just like sort of imprisoned for no reason for periods of time and then let go. It's a very arbitrary existence. Their families are under threat at all times. It's a very different life. However... Uh, as, you may, as you discovered, I hope, in the show, their needs, their wants, their desires are exactly the same as Americans. You know, they want safety. They want security. They want a job. They want food on the table. They want their kids to be safe. You know, they want those basic things, and that connects them very much to our experience.
2: The courage of these people is what you come away with, too, like Al-Bashir. Is that his name? The guy, the yes. guy that's sort of the John yes. Stewart of Iraq?
0: Yes. And what, yes. He, what
2: he's gone through and was Amazing. he he was imprisoned and joked with his torturers so that yes. so that they wouldn't kill him the joke yes. about don't put the bottle up my ass
0: exactly and it worked it worked for him now he has he's witnessed He's been involved. He's he was involved in a, a suicide bombing. Yeah. Uh, his uh, his brother was killed. His, his many members of his family were wiped out or injured very very badly. He's been imprisoned, as you mentioned, and tortured more than once. And here he is. He's a very he's the most important voice uh, in in Iraq, really. At this point, he's Incredible. the only person doing what he's doing. You know, and there was a, a, such a
1: strange part. Of the movie that looked like it was dreamt up. I thought this can't be real. There was a general. Oh, the warlord, the ex warlord. Yes, named Butt Naked. Yes. And you're thinking, (laughs) how could, you know, how fierce and how scary this guy is that he can have proudly call himself Butt Naked and nobody laughs at that. (laughs) <laughs> you know he's yeah. that scary
2: he's that he's that dangerous well did he go did he go into battle naked because he somehow thought
0: it made him invulnerable absolutely that was that was the uh how it got started. The media sort of dubbed him butt naked because he would fight naked. He would yes. have all his soldiers fight naked because he believed uh that the bullets would not uh right. penetrate them if they were naked, yeah. So and in his case, it worked. You know, I mean, he's alive. Not only is he alive; he was a uh, a cannibal. He uh, slaughtered uh, children uh, while they were alive. He would take them and like sacrifice them, and then feed their hearts to the other child soldiers to get them in the mindset oh. to fight the battles. You know, and that's who he was, and he survived it, and he, and even though he killed so many people, they have forgiven him. He's like a preacher now in Liberia in Monrovia, so very surreal story. I was very interested in meeting him. It was the first night we got to Liberia. It was very scary. You're on the street where the war took place, where he did his fighting. Yeah. You know, and he's a darkened me street, <laughs> a very darkened <laughs> yeah.
1: street. And and the funniest part of that, that I thought. Oh come on! Somebody wrote this for him. It can't be real. You asked him what makes him laugh. Yes. <laughs> and tell us the answer.
0: He he said, "I love Bill Cosby, <laughs> and I love uh, his show, Kids Say the Darndest Thing." Uh, <laughs> just too great. After, after confessing to murdering children, that was his favorite show. And and again, like even though I'm scared in that situation, and I'm nervous, and I'm anxious. I knew when he said that I was like, yeah, you know, you I, had got great some. Piece. I had a great piece for the film. You know,
1: I, I mean, he's hes a cannibal and a bloodthirsty killer, but he loves Cosby and kids He loves call- He loves to laugh.
2: <laughs> yeah. Also Sanford and Son. <laughs> Sanford and Son, too. Yes. Yeah. yes. You, you're a brave man, Larry. I mean, you say yeah. it in that episode. Why, what am I doing? At some point, you have a moment of realization. What the hell am I doing on this darkened street? in Liberia yeah. talking to this guy with twenty thousand uh
0: kills. Yes to, yes, to his I, credit.
2: I, and you're asking
0: him provocative
2: questions.
0: Well the first question I asked him was, uh what is what does human flesh taste like? And he told me like pork ribs. I mean he yeah. didn't hesitate <laughs> even to answer Unbelievable. the question. So. <laughs> <laughs> All I could think of was
2: George Costanza's p- uh, porn name, Buck Naked, <laughs> Buck Naked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, that yeah. is that is br- and boy too. The the women, the the female comedians too in Liberia. The su- a super, what was her name? Super Mama,
0: Super Mama and Mamie. The, yeah. The, the bravery
2: and what they've been through.
0: Unbelievable. I mean, child, you know, child uh, uh, as children, they are being raped by soldiers. They're having children, they're on the run constantly, they're watching, they're standing there while people are being killed all around them, and they wind up finding some humor, some way of using humor, not so much to criticize, but to heal. And that, again, was kind of a, a, an epiphany for me is like, oh, wow, these people are not coming out of this bitter and angry, really, yeah. or wanting to really critique or satirize what's going on. People do that also. Al Bashir certainly does. But a lot of people, their motivation after experiencing that is to help others heal. And that I found very moving, surprisingly moving, and I wasn't really anticipating that. Of course.
1: And and I found it really interesting, too. They showed a comedy club in I don't know Saudi Arabia wherever, mm-hmm. and and of course they're on stage in front of a brick wall.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yes. <laughs> was that, <laughs> yes. Was that the LOL club? And uh... no, it wasn't. The LOL club all is closed now, but okay. they also had a brick wall. Yeah. But the place you're talking about was in Saudi Arabia, and it had the brick wall. It was all set up like a regular <laughs> comedy club. Only men, only men are allowed, which is kind of interesting, also, and uh, but completely. Uh, Um, um, sort of uh, imitating uh, the American Comedy Club. Absolutely, yes. And all of them are, this is the thing, although there's a lot of original cultural humor that comes out of these different societies, the foundation for all all modern humor like this everywhere, all modern humor is Western humor. So people are watching videos and seeing you and other great comedians on stage in a brick wall in front of a brick wall, and they want to recreate that experience. That That to those people, to those cultures is what comedy is. It's amazing. Yeah,
2: it's amazing. I mean, you, at one point you were talking about how they didn't really even know what stand-up was. They thought that that, that jokes were it's a cr- very cruel things at somebody else's expense. They were
0: insults, which, of course, insults. as we know from some of our favorite comedians like Jackie Leonard or Don Rickles, that is kind of like a raison d'etre for their humor as sure. well. But here, people didn't realize that there was a joke involved. They didn't know what a joke was, yes, essentially. That's the, that's you that's the they didn't thing. understand set-up punchline. No, line. not at all. Right, right, right. Exactly. Those those ideas were brought from watching uh, videos uh, of, of American comedy. American comedy – is is imperialistic just like american culture is and it's spread everywhere and everyone from nigeria to saudi arabia is basically influenced deeply by american comedy wow
2: i wonder what they think of you in saudi arabia if they're,
0: if they're watching clips i mean how much
2: american comedy are they seeing what are, what are you, they getting
0: well, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, um, but I found, for instance, Seinfeld is massively popular, like, in the Arab nations. Oh, my God. And in, and even in Africa. Uh, so um, we, we would go – when I was in Jordan, when we were shooting Bruno – we would walk down the street in Oman, which is a Muslim country, very highly anti-Semitic Muslim country at times. There's no Jews. Most of these countries I was in, by the way, I'm the only Jew. I'm the only Jew <laughs> in this a country. Brave man. <laughs> yeah. So, in, when we were shooting Bruno in Jordan, we were, we were the, the the coterie was the, were the only Jews there. Sasha and a few other people. But you'd walk down the street and there'd be all these street sellers selling bootleg DVDs and invariably, invariably, you'd walk down the street and you would see Borat, uh, you would see Curb Your Enthusiasm, you would see Seinfeld, and then you would see a copy of uh, Mein Kampf. It was always...
2: Unbelievable.
0: <laughs> those, those are the four big bestsellers. <laughs> <laughs> and Norman's Corner, Gilbert.
1: Yes. The
0: <laughs> of Norman's uh, Corner. Yes. Did you write that with Larry David? Was that something you do with Larry David? Uh,
1: yeah, you yes, bet. Yes, yes. In fact, my favorite story that I love telling is, you know, he, he wrote Norman's Corner, and I starred in it. And then uh, when they were pitching Seinfeld to the network, and they said, well, who's creating this show? And they said, Larry David. And one of the high execs at NBC said, isn't he the guy that wrote that piece of shit for Gilbert <laughs> Godfrey? <laughs>
2: That's
0: so great. Arnold Stang was, was good so in it, though, great. Gilbert. Yes, he get <laughs> Credit for
2: casting Arnold Stang. Larry, when did, did you guys met a couple of times over the years? He, Gilbert the was unsure
0: how many times or where. I'm going to tell you what I think is the first time we met, and then you tell me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, we met in the early, in the mid '80s. I would say, like '84, yeah. uh, through Richard Belzer. Yeah, Richard Belzer had a show on Cinemax, and you were yeah. a guest on that show. And I think that's the first time I met you and saw you perform live. Also, wow.
1: Yeah, I I just remember you're one of those people I always kind of ran into. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you're both from yeah. the same neighborhood. You've, Where are you from in Brooklyn? Okay, I was born in Coney Island. Okay. And uh, then Borough Park, and then. No, no. Born in Coney Island, then Crown Heights, and then Borough Park.
0: Yeah, so you moved to the other side of Brooklyn after Coney Island pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I stayed in Coney Island, Brighton Beach, I was in Trump Village. Which was on the uh, like split the difference between Brighton Beach on the one side and Coney Island on the other, and that's pretty much where I grew up until my parents got divorced, and then my mother moved us to Florida. Of course, that's where you have to go, and uh, but but that part of Brooklyn, that Coney Island part of Brooklyn, that's where I grew up as well. Yeah, and that's where Larry's from Brighton Beach as well. Yeah, as is Mel Mel Brooks, and you know, like that is kind of a comedy golden triangle for some bizarre reason.
2: Yeah. Tell, and tell us a little bit about your upbringing because I'm not sure people know too much about this. And I was surprised to find that your, your father was a stand up. He did My comedy. Father was-
0: my father was a failed stand-up. My father went uh, – after World War II, uh, he went uh, to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts on the GI Bill. He wanted to be an actor, and he tried out for the actor studio and whatever, didn't pass the auditions, did stand-up for a while, had the stage name – and this is no joke, this is the truth – Psycho, the exotic neurotic. Psycho. That was just, <laughs> Psycho. Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> that was his name, and um, you know, it, those things didn't work. I didn't really stick with it, and uh, but he had a guy. I don't know if you remember this name, Gilbert. There was a, a great TV writer when we were kids named Stan Burns, and he wrote for the Tonight Show, and he wrote for Get Smart, and he he had a show that his own called Lancelot Link Secret Ship, If you remember that, sure, with Barney yeah. Coppell. Yeah, he yeah. was a great comedy writer, and he, in the army, wrote material for my father. So when I came out to California, he said, my father said, go see Stan Burns, you know? And I came out to California in the late 70s, and in those days, you'd pick up the phone book, right? There's no internet or computers or cell phones or anything, but people are still on the phone book, so I look up Stan Burns in the phone book. He's in Woodland Hills. I call him up. He's so nice to me. He invites me out to breakfast. I start hanging out with Stan Burns. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm seeing him weekly at DuPars for breakfast. <laughs> and he's he's having me write jokes for him for this uh, Gold Diggers roast that he's doing, speaking of roasts. Uh, and I started ghostwriting jokes for him for the Gold Diggers roast, the Dean Martin celebrity roast. And... A few of those jokes got on. He was really sweet, really generous to me, and about six months went by, and one day at DuPars he said, kid, I gotta tell you something. And I was like, what? He said, I'm gonna tell you the truth. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I have no idea who your father is. (laughs) I've been racking my brain since the day we talked. I can't remember him. You're a good kid, I like you. But I I have no idea who he. Well, but he got is, the so. goods
2: out of you first. Now he did. He yeah. did.
0: He
1: was how, a great guy, actually. Now your father, being both a failed actor and failed comedian, how do you think that affected him? His personality, his whole.
0: I think he was lost after that. Frankly, I think he was so uh, consumed by show business. I think he was he so wanted to be a part of it. Uh, even when I was a kid, he remained friends with. Like Jason Robards had been his drama teacher, or wow. he was friends with the lighting guy at the Kraft Music Hall, or the associate director of the Ed Sullivan Show, and he would take me on the weekend or whatever, and he would take me and see those people, and I would go behind the scenes at all these shows all the time. You know, I was for me, I think it planted the seeds, but for him, he always he never found anything that quite captured his passion like show business did. So he was obsessed with it. Instead of, you know, math and science and whatever, he would be asking me trivia questions about movies, about Jimmy Cagney and about Humphrey Bogart. You know, that's what he was mostly interested in. And that's what I was filled with, you know, and i now I've been spewing it out my entire adult yeah, life. Yeah, of course.
1: So did, did your father see your success?
0: My father's actually still alive. Oh, uh, he's wow. he's, a, he's in a he's in a uh, we he just was put into a um, an assisted living facility. He's 91. Um he's pretty out of it now, unfortunately. Uh yes, he saw my success, but if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I think he had issues with it. I think he never was fully able to embrace it and be supportive of it. Even though inadvertently he was my inspiration, I don't think he ever really was able to enjoy it uh, the way he should have. You know, I think that was something that he was not able to give himself, you know. That's interesting.
2: Well, Ted, yeah. I've heard you describe the neighborhood, and you guys come from similar backgrounds, and you describe it as being like a Soviet block and something out of Lord of the Flies.
0: Very much so. Everybody moved into Trump Village at the same time. And there were these other uh, housing projects there, too, like Luna Park. And there were these buildings of 23-story buildings All the kids moved in around the same time, like 63, 64. So you had like a prison kind of uh, uh, number of boys growing up at the same time, and everyone is jostling for power and for dominance and for status, and a lot of people fell by the wayside. There was the bullying. When you talk about bullying in today's society there were hundreds of bullies in my neighborhood. Everywhere you turned, if you were waiting at the bus stop, if you were getting on the train, if you were trying to play basketball, if you were going to school, there were people all the time besieging you, uh, uh, threatening you, intimidating you, taking your stuff, stealing your books, spitting on your in your hat and making you wear it. I mean, that was growing up in my neighborhood. That was pretty adorable stuff. It, it is funny now that bullying
1: is such a big topic Because it was just a way of life growing up. Exactly. Did you experience these things, Gilbert, sort of from the same neck of the woods? I'm I'm a tough guy. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I know you you kick their asses. So people always back off when I walk down. I'm
2: just curious, from a sociological standpoint, if that kind of hard scrabble life, that environment, having to, as you say, navigate these kind of tough personalities, if that
0: molded you guys in the same way... To be funny. Well, I, I think you taught – you. I know for me, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is true for Gilbert and a lot of these guys uh, who grew up this way, I, I found instinctively that I was able to talk my way out of a lot of violent situations and kind of spare myself by kind of verbalizing and kind of almost – Tricking them with verbal dexterity. And uh, I think I've absolutely um, used that uh, uh, sort of learned trait. Uh, like it's perfect. It was perfect in Borat. I'm very good at talking people into things. I'm very good at having people listen if I want them to. I can kind of like put that trance state. I can kind of do that for some reason just because I learned it from surviving on the streets of Brighton Beach, basically. It's so a talent. You, you, you mean
2: things like persuading the, the, the Pentecostal minister, the preacher in Borat, that, that tricking them? I don't want to use the word tricking them, but somehow convincing them that, that,
0: that Borat was – a guy in need of saving? Well, when I talk to someone like that in that situation, I mean, it's kind of an acting exercise for me also because uh-huh. I I have to fully believe it. If I'm going to sell you on something, I have to kind of commit to it. Fully the way a great comedian like Gilbert commits to his premise and and never gives up on it and isn't afraid of what the consequences <laughs> Boy, might be. Boy is that true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but it's it's what produces the gold, really. And the same thing is true in this situation. By setting that up properly, by having that man believe that Borat was lost and needed help. Yeah uh he he fully committed to healing borat and we got a chance to witness that which is one of the most amazing things i've personally ever seen you know was this healing process it's it's i watched it again last night it's magnificent
1: and oh, and, yeah. and how did you work out that scene with borat and the big fat guy naked in the <laughs> elevator
0: <laughs> well that you know it's funny he came in first for the audition And we had seen a lot of guys for this part. Azamat. For Azamat. And guys would come in who were American actors, and they would put on, like, Russian accents. And it was very fake-sounding. And, again, remember, these guys, Sasha has to be close up with real people all day long, so it can't feel fake. It's got to seem real. So we couldn't find anybody who had that kind of authenticity. He came in, Ken Davishian came in, And he was in character, and he seemed like a kind of a guy who just stumbled in from a Russian grocery on Santa Monica Boulevard or something. And I felt sorry for him. We felt bad for him. We were, like, trying to help him get through this audition. He didn't understand anything, and we were feeling really sorry for him. And when it was over, in his regular voice, he said, do you need anything else? (laughs) He, he tricked us. <laughs> and he, so he immediately he immediately got the part, but when it came time to do and he was great and he was really cooperative, he would do anything we asked, but when we started talking about the naked fight, he was like, "I don't get it. I don't see what's so funny about me naked." <laughs> <laughs> was, like we would just say, "Trust us, just trust us on this." You know,
2: what, was Sasha tapping out at one point on the mattress, and you were
0: ignoring him? Do I have absolutely? Do I am right? like, very ruthless. Here. I'm very ruthless <laughs> when it comes to shooting this stuff. You know, I don't know how many times we could do it, so I know we have to get it that one time, One-take or we may comedy. not ever get it again. So with that, he had uh, understandable reticence about spending a long period of time underneath. Ken Devishian's ass, and he, he he didn't want to be one wood. He didn't want to be trapped in that crack like a, like a miner. You know, a miner gets trapped and there's no air pocket. He was he was very concerned about that. So we we devised a a plan where we got like a surgical mask, and as he slid under his ass. We would put the surgical mask on Sasha's mouth, and then he'd be under, and then and then Ken could rock on him and do all the kind of stuff. <laughs> but we had a safe, you know, a safe gesture, which was <laughs> a tap out. And this last time, it was going so well, and I'm sque- this audio of me like just screaming at Ken, "Keep going, keep going!" <laughs> and you see Sasha's forehead because that's all you can see is turning beet red and he's slamming the thing but I'm still shooting and I'm still shooting and then finally we ended and of course he's like suffocating and we realized wait a minute where's the mask the the mask disappeared and we looked all around and it had kind of gone up into Ken's folds and and finally emerged a couple of takes later oh my god
1: so, so yeah. the life-saving device for Sasha Cohen was
0: in this guy's asshole? <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It had there? to be very carefully extracted, as you can imagine. What are you talking about when you guys went to the screening and you were
2: watching people watch that scene, and you said they were reacting like they were watching a horror movie?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that Gilbert can really relate to this. Gilbert does this to a live audience sometimes, and oh, sure. I, I'm just— I'm bowled over when he does it. I mean, you could get an audience just going completely insane when you're building on that laugh and it's building like a wave until people are out of control. I've seen you do that on stage many, many times. And that's what that scene was, was like, it was like it built so much that people lost control. And I love that horror film aspect of comedy when people are having this visceral, uncontrollable, involuntary reaction to what they're watching. That to me is you've tapped into some kind of there.
1: Yeah, because it's really that kind of thing, watching that scene in particular, going you know, oh no, I, I don't want to watch this, but I don't want to look <laughs> well, away. I saw it yes, with an audience. Yes, what a treat yes. to
2: see. I mean, we were talking about you know, we, we lament on this fact, you know, that on this, uh, this topic, the death of movie theaters and how you don't get to you know, this is, this is an experience that's basically endangered. Seeing, yes. seeing movies with other people, and I saw that in a packed house. I have never seen people react I mean, it was it was screaming. Yes, like it, it was, was some, I've, I've something other that.
0: than laughter. It was yeah, otherworldly. Again, it, it humbles me. I mean, I, I, you know, when you when you are in the first couple of screenings that we had, we we did not anticipate people freaking out. I mean, from the time that the 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 titles come out at the beginning. The logo for the fake company that made mm-hmm. the movie. People were laughing, and we—I remember Sasha and I looking at each other at one of these screenings, like, "Wow, we can't believe it!" And it was just like a roller coaster ride. So it's just—it it worked out. It just kind of clicked, you know.
1: And there was something Sasha Cohen did that was like almost like a an experiment, almost like so revealing. When he was that character singing, he went into a honky tonk bar. Yes. You want to talk about this?
0: Yeah. No, I didn't shoot that. Oh, that's that on was the done. series. Yeah. That's yeah. not from the movie, but yeah. that is one of the, his famous routines right. was he goes into an Arizona bar and gets the entire crowd inside the bar to sing, Throw the Jew in the Well. Uh, And he, again, is an expert at, again, manipulating audiences, manipulating crowds, manipulating masses into doing his bidding. I mean, it's really, it's unsettling sometimes to watch how easily people can be manipulated if they want to be, not against their will. Everyone in all these situations that we're in with the Sasha movies has the opportunity to say no all along the way. But the, the social dynamic is there's so much pressure to cooperate with a camera on you and a microphone on you. It's, it's very hard for people to not go along with the program at that point. They're in too deep, you know. It's more than just
2: comedy in a way, Larry. If you break, you know, you know, I hate to break it down or dissect the frog, but you remember Alan Abel, The
0: Hoaxer? Of course. Yeah. I, I was a big fan of Alan Abel. I remember his movie, uh, Is There Sex After Death? Sex After death. death, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Buck, Buck Henry was
2: involved with him too early yes, on. Yes, yes. But uh-huh. it, it's a little bit of that too. It's you—you you, you guys are making a comedy, but you're also—it's—it's it's all a sociological experiment. Well, it's, when it it's does its job on another level, yeah.
0: yeah. When it does its job, it is uh, hopefully exposing hypocrisy and shining some kind of uh, light on the truth of these particular situations, you know, and that, that, but that's sort of inadvertent. You hope that happens along the way with the comedy and you have to have the comedy in balance with that. Otherwise, it's just very, uh, uh, very serious. That's where the seriousness is. If you move it ten degrees the other way, it's a very serious look at white supremacy and anti-Semitism. And we interviewed a lot of very violent people. A guy in Kansas who wound up being convicted of murders and is on death row. You know, so there, there are some very serious people out there. And as it turned out. Those people, we thought exposing those people would sort of show the folly and the absurdity of their positions. Instead, we're in a situation now where it's become almost societally acceptable to adopt those positions in life. So things have changed a lot.
1: Yeah, because watching when he did that, throw the Jews down the well, it was so— it's funny and frightening at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Well, so is when he's
2: singing the, when, when he does the national anthem, the Kazakh yes. national anthem <laughs> at, the, at the rodeo in the feature. Yes. It's yeah. terrifying. Those,
0: yeah. There are a lot of terrifying moments. But in truth, Borat was a very, uh, was perceived by the people that encountered him as an innocent. Yes. Uh, character, and thus were much more patient with him and willing to accept his uh, so-called ignorance. With Bruno, Bruno's a much darker film, and the reason Bruno's a darker film is because the main character is kind of a uh, is a homosexual, but he's also not an innocent. Yes, and people had absolutely no. To- In the same way that they had incredible tolerance for Borat, they had absolutely no tolerance for Bruno. People would see Bruno walk down the street, and they wanted to hit him, they wanted to jostle him, they wanted to call him out. And we had so much, uh, so much higher level of violence and tension and darkness on that movie, that really was the lesson for us as well. Because it was a very, wound up being a very dark version of America, which we really did not anticipate at all.
2: Were there 50 cops called in or something like that? Or 40 cops to get you guys out of the, this, was it, was it the, the ultimate fighting scene? This, this,
0: yeah, there this, was a. Well, the, we. It's a Those were very complicated scenes. There's a lot of police involved. We also had police chasing us most of the time. Really, it was. <laughs> we, unbelievable. We, we rarely had the police on our side, they were usually uh, coming after us. Bruno, you know? we're
2: talking about now.
0: Uh, yeah. On both Bruno on both and Borat, yeah, yeah. We always had uh, – we, you know, uh, Borat, one of the best scenes that is not in the movie uh, is we went to Washington, D.C., and we would take the ice cream truck, and we would just drive around near these national monuments and stuff. And uh, we realized Borat looks – you know, he's got the black mustache. Sure. And all of us were in the back of the ice cream truck with our cameras and black bags and suddenly we look like we could be terrorists in an ice cream truck. What the hell are we doing in an ice cream truck at the Washington Monument? So suddenly the Secret Service would be on us or the FBI would come up to us, you know, and we were constantly being uh, uh, sort of uh, approached and confronted and uh, detained quite often by by the authorities. High stress. In that particular case that you're talking about at the, uh, at the cage fight,
2: yeah, Bruno. The, the
0: police had to help. The police had to help us get out. Yeah. Well, Dan Mazer, one of the
2: writers on Borat, I was reading an interview with him and he said every day was like actually preparing for a bank robbery.
0: It exactly. Was such high stress. High stress, uh, high stakes. Right. But by the same token, when we were done and we got away with it, there was nothing more exhilarating than the feeling of having gotten away with it. And we would get back in the van and we would be like giddy with laughter because we had actually got it. We, we went into a bank. We did a scene in a bank where it was just us. And the bank president in Oklahoma after hours, you know, and I'm thinking, man, if we just pull out guns right now, we could rob this bank as well as make the movie. Why not? You know, we will
1: return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. And there was something in the dangerous world of comedy that were that kind of thing, you know you're watching a lot of people cross the line, but there Mm -hmm. was that one guy, he was just spewing uh, anti-Semitic, it was just, uh,
0: you know, hatred of the Jews. Yes, Weave, his name is Weave, yeah. He's like kind of a, he and Baked Alaska were both kind of uh, these white uh, nationalist um, social media comedians, and I wanted to get... That perspective, it was much harder to get. I, I chased after a lot of alt right comedians, and I could not get too many to sit down and actually talk to me. Uh, those two guys were willing to talk, to their credit, but uh, in the case of Weave, he almost doesn't have control. It seemed to me, it's almost like one of these kind of um Tourette like things with him when he went off on his anti Semitic rants and. Uh, it didn't even seem – it seemed like it was a, a kind of a, just a spewing rather than even thoughtful, like something that he just does like a Tourette's person curses, you know?
2: Do you ever – maybe this is a naive question, Larry. Do you, do you recall feeling uh, – fearing for your life while making this new series? Standing on
0: that darkened street, for instance, talking to Butt Naked? Th- there was two or three times when I thought I I may have made a mistake. In too deep. One, one was in Iraq. We were going to Kirkuk, uh, which had been besieged by ISIS. And we were going there to a, a, um, an Iraqi prison uh, where an ISIS prisoner was. And I was going to interview the ISIS prisoner. Um, and when we got to – we got stuck in like kind of a checkpoint. Mosul was falling the same day that we we had to do this. So we could see the smoke from the battle of Mosul going on while we were trying to get to Kirkuk, and there was kind of chaos on the road. And I thought, boy, what do we, you know, this we're trapped really in this situation. And so it worked out okay. We went to the prison and talked to the ISIS prisoner, which was fascinating. Uh, but I was I was nervous that day. The, the next time it happened was with butt, with a uh, uh, butt naked. Um, because we had just gotten to Liberia. I knew nothing about anything, and they told us he would meet us at night on the street. And I jumped into it and realized, wow, we're totally vulnerable here. Of course, I haven't checked anything out. We haven't you know, done anything, and it's dark, and I don't know what's going to happen. The third time, which was the most intense time, was in Mogadishu. In Mogadishu, there were a number of times where we would get caught in a checkpoint situation, and there would just be dozens of men in with machine guns, and they'd be all wearing camo, but slightly different color camo. And you had all these different groups with arms. And you didn't know whose side, who was who, whose side you were on, whose side was was gonna uh, open fire. There was a lot of that tension the entire time we were in Somalia and as soon as we left there was like a bomb blast at a bus in Mogadishu that killed like 550 people. So I felt very lucky to have walked away from that one. because um, it's it was a, it was it, that is a I would not advise uh, going as a tourist to Somalia. However, it's a beautiful country and hopefully someday they'll figure they'll figure it out.
1: <laughs> and you there know? was that the ISIS prisoner Yes. It was so weird to look at him because you say, "This is a guy who he's, looks like he he works the cash register at Seven 11
0: Yes, that's what they, that's. Uh, I think that was one of the things I was glad to be able to illuminate. Was we tend to demonize these people? We don't know anything about them. Uh, we we paint them as 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 villains, and we have a kind of a, a one dimensional mindset about what they are. But this guy was saying he was a farmer. You know, he had been recruited. He had been threatened. You know, it's like you, the makeup of the actual people who are in ISIS is actually much more human. They live under these incredible conditions where they have to respond either to join ISIS or to fight against it. You know, they can't just go on with their lives like we get a chance to do. So they have to make these hard decisions, and a lot of them wound up fighting and getting caught. And uh, you know, now they're they're in prison and, who, and like at Guantanamo, all the people that are not charged there. So it's. It's a very – it's a bad cycle that there's no bra- – in, in Somalia, you have Al-Shabaab, which is another sort of uh, version of that terrorist group. And We met a defector from Al-Shabaab, and I asked him also what they found funny. He had some interesting answers. Yep. When, they dragged, when they dragged the bodies of the enemies behind the truck, that's what used to make them laugh. <laughs> well,
2: we're going we're gonna to tell our listeners to check this out. And we'll come back to it at the end, but February 15th. Sure. Right, yes, February fifteenth yes. on Netflix. It, it, yes, sir. It is utterly fascinating.
1: Thank you. And, and now let's get to how you started working in TV with, like, well, Seinfeld. Let's go. Okay. To...
0: Well, Seinfeld, I I knew Larry David from Fridays. And we had, we had become immediate friends. He's a little older than me. He, we're from the same neighborhood. He immediately became like a big brother, mentor type of figure to me and uh, really showed me a lot about writing and discipline and things like that at Fridays. We collaborated on a lot of stuff. We remained friends after Fridays. Uh, if I would hear of a job, I would recommend him for it and vice versa. Eventually, uh, sometime after Norman's Corner, he-
2: <laughs> 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 Had to bring that up again.
0: Which I was not asked to work on. He uh, <laughs> he, he he did this. He, he, he hooked up with Jerry, and uh, they started to do this thing, and it became, obviously, the show Seinfeld. Seinfeld Chronicles at that yeah, time, right, originally developed. I mean, the whole uh, mythology and the legend is all well-known. It was developed for late night and all this. He showed me, he came out, Larry, to the Age Hotel at that time to show the three or four scripts that he had written to Castle Rock, who were going to produce the show. And he invited me over to his hotel, and I read those four scripts in the lobby. And they were like the uh, the robbery, uh, the ex-girlfriend, the mm-hmm. Chinese restaurant. You know, there was another one, too. I can't remember. The phone message, maybe. And I was laughing in the lobby. I'd never read anything that funny. They, was, they were just so unique and so original. And he asked me to work on the show, and I said yes. And uh, But Castle Rock said no. And they said that Larry had no experience except for Norman's Corner, which, of course, worked against him. <laughs> <laughs> nice work, you <Gil. laughs> Almost killed Seinfeld, Norman's Corner. Just think about that. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> but but they said that he had never done a sitcom before and um and I had never done a sitcom before so they would not they Larry of course was the creator of the show but they refused to hire me so I was cast adrift for a while and I got a job on the Arsenio Hall show which I think I again saw you at the Arsenio Hall show at some point. Ah. Oh, I
1: became like kind of a regular for a short exactly. period. Exactly, and of time I was a writer.
0: There. I was a writer that year. And so I would see you – I don't know if I even talked to you, but I saw you all the time. Uh, and you were great, obviously, always great. Um, but I was working on that show, and he had – Arsenio, to his credit, had wanted to do kind of edgy monologues. and But when he actually got to be uh, uh, the host of the show, he was a black man in a, in a very white medium, and he started to get hate mail – that was out of control. And if a white woman came on the show and he just shook her hand, they would be hate mail. Switchboard would light up, you know. That's what you had then a switchboard, you know. It was kind of yeah. old-fashioned. Ah. So my jokes, he wouldn't use my jokes because they were just too radical, really. He liked them. He told me he thought they were funny, but he couldn't use them. And I knew I was going to get fired eventually. And that's when I met Jack Nicholson when I had that encounter <laughs> Oh, glad with I was just going to get to
2: that. That was the magical Jack Nicholson encounter.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I walked out of the, the trailer where we did the writing on Arsenio knowing that my contract was up. I was about to have a baby, and it was like things were really pretty bad, and I was looking for some kind of sign. And Jack Nicholson was on the lot on Paramount doing the two jakes. And he was—I suddenly I see in the distance this beautiful red Mercedes convertible, and I see the Laker hat, and it's like, wow, Jack Nicholson is cruising right past me. And as we cruise past, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he just started laughing, and just went, "Yeah, it's funny," and just kept going. And I thought, <laughs> wow. I just I just had a Zen moment with Jack Nicholson, and sure enough, I was fired immediately right after that. And um, I got I actually got an interview, amazingly enough, with uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans on In Living oh, Color. In Living Color, and I went to that interview, and Keenan stood me up. And I was the kind of person at that time um, who really had a short temper with that kind of stuff, and I stormed out of the meeting. I stormed out of the waiting room and um when I got home Larry was calling me cuz now they had done like the first four episodes right. and they were getting picked up for the 13 and he's like hey man you want to come work on the show you can come work on the show now and I was like yeah I'm free you know and I took the job on the show Keenan Ivory Wayans called me back After that, and said, "Hey, man, I'm so sorry. There was a scheduling mix-up. Please come in. We really want to work with you." And I was like, "I took this other job already." And that's how I wound up working. So,
1: having a short
0: temper got you uh, to work
1: with work on Seinfeld. (laughs) And because Jack
2: Nicholson intervened, yes, (laughs) and and, divine intervention.
1: It's interesting, like how I Castle Rock. They didn't want you because you didn't have that much experience. And didn't Larry David go out of his way to hire people who didn't have experience writing sitcoms?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know that the um the second or third season, we you know we didn't have a, a traditional uh, writing staff ever that I was there. Later on, after I left, I think things got a little bit, the, the formula, the code had been cracked and they were able to kind of create a culture that they could kind of replicate the show. But in those first couple of years, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We didn't even know how to write a sitcom. We didn't know the format for the sitcom. We didn't know how many scenes or anything. We didn't know how to tell the story. Amazing. We just did, we, we did what we thought was funny. We thought the show would get canceled. It liberated us. And we would just kind of figure it out as we went along. And so Larry thought comedians would be good people to draw stories from you know so we had a whole staff of com- road comedians at one point uh, who uh contributed stories to the show because again they were not writers in the traditional sense but they were people that had very seinfeldian kind of adventures you people know? like
2: bob shaw and uh, pe- and people Bo- like yeah. exactly yeah. bob shaw
0: bill yeah. masters, masters john hayman right, right. I you know, know Heyman. Uh, Steve Steve Scrovan, sure, funny guys, all of them. Yeah, all great guys, yeah. all great guys. I yes. mean,
1: I remember what was fun around that time is the times I would talk to Larry David, and he'd just tell me some horror story that happened in his life, usually having to do with trying to get laid. Yes, and and then I, you know, I would see a few weeks later it pop up on the show. Yes. And I thought, wow, I know where this came from.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, you know, part of it is the pressure of coming up with 22 or 24 episodes in a season. That's almost crazy. So he was very courageous and brave as he always has been, in drawing directly from his autobiography, you know, drawing from his life. So he would literally have bad dates, or awkward encounters, or I'd be with him like in an in a, in arts deli, and we would come out, and the, the woman at the cashier didn't have any change, and she had to run backstage to get change, came back and gave us the change, and we went outside on Ventura Boulevard, we bumped into somebody that we'd been avoiding for 20 years. So it's like those kind of stories, <laughs> if she, had, if she she had just had to change, you know, like a crazy well, Joe
2: DiVola character.
0: All all right. those things were like happening, right. either either had happened or were happening, and we were constantly pulling on those things to make stories out of them and figure out how to structure them into what became a Seinfeld episode.
1: And 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 the story about um, George Costanza. Uh, being in a girl's apartment and having to take a shit and having <laughs> nice. to excuse himself uh, had happened to Larry.
0: That's a completely true story. And... um he that's that when he said that st- I, he had told me that story before thinking about it for Seinfeld, and I always thought that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. I cannot believe it. He actually for for he would forego sex because he wanted to go back to his apartment to have a bowel movement, and I, <laughs> that's Larry though you know as we know and but he was brave <laughs> enough to think that's a great idea for an episode. As a matter of fact, one of the episodes I used to. He, Larry and Jerry used to share an office at Radford, and then I had an office like adjacent to them. Their office had a private bathroom, and if you you didn't have that private bathroom, you had to go out to the hallway to that crappy bathroom in the hallway. So I just completely obliviously would use their bathroom for everything. And they'd be working, they'd be writing, and I I would stroll in. With a ma- I'd strolling in with a magazine, literally, and I'd go, hey, how you doing? And I would go into their bathroom and go sit there for 15 minutes or whatever. And I didn't realize they were getting pissed off at me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but the brilliance of the show is that we wound up using that as an episode, you know? I, that's the episode which also combines a number of other Larry incidents, the episode where he gets fired and then comes back to work, pretends it doesn't happen. That's a true story from Cyanide. Oh, SNL, Yes.
1: Yeah. And, and it, it's funny that he went out of his way to hire people who hadn't worked on sitcoms. Because had he hired people with those experiences, it would have been a, a situation comedy like a billion others.
0: Exactly. And well, the he stories had to fight. would, yeah. I was just going to say, not to interrupt, I apologize. He would fight, and I would back him up always. He would fight with the Castle Rock executives and the NBC executives because they wanted something more traditional. The Chinese restaurant was literally about the four of them waiting for a table. Nothing else happened initially. And they fought and fought about some kind of storyline. And we finally added, well, they're waiting for a movie, you know, and they're gonna be late for the movie. But really Larry did Larry wanted to deconstruct the form even without thinking about it. His instinct was to deconstruct the form, you know? And it's true, if we had followed the Castle Rock advice or the NBC advice the show would not have been what it became. It would have been a much more traditional, rote, uh, uh, predictable type of uh, uh, sitcom.
2: And instead you're breaking new ground. Was it the first episode you wrote or the second one where Jerry's shot in his own apartment? (laughs) He's gunned down because he's stealing cable? (laughs)
0: Well, I love the idea of being able – that's what's so great about Jerry and Larry and why I love them and and revere them really because they allowed me to do stuff like that. They Just encouraged courage. me to do things like that. And we were all thinking of ways of breaking the form and changing the form and expanding the form and expanding the language of what's funny and what's a sitcom. And they really encouraged me to sort of follow my path uh, on that on that show. Yeah.
2: It's great, too. Let's ask you about the—and you've been asked about this a million times— but about the episode, the gun episode, the one that never, that never right. made it to air.
0: right. Well, that was my, I, I look at that now as my failure as a writer. I think Larry was, he would inspire me because he would take subjects that were, you know, like masturbation and he would find a way of writing an episode about it that was compelling and funny and didn't even get any notes from standards Yeah, it was and able to be
2: done in network television.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I, and I, I was always looking to push that envelope, push that envelope. And I had this idea about Elaine buying a gun. I had, I had met a number of women during that time who were contemplating, buying guns and I thought this is an interesting thing and I put together an episode but the episode although it had funny moments in it and it was it had some very uh, startling moments in it it was not successful as a coherent episode and once there's no laughter in a story like that it became very very grim and I could not Larry and Jerry would often let my episodes be whatever they were. And it usually worked out okay. I mean, they didn't have to do a lot of work on my episodes. They seemed to be cool with it, or they would do a, a kind of a, a quick pass at it. This they didn't know what to do with, and I didn't know what to do with. And I think that the starkness of the story under those conditions made it hard to sell to the actors and to the network. And so right. even though we had cast it and we were sort of along the way of that episode, we had to pull the plug on it. The shame. What other plots
1: and stories had you written that couldn't make it on the air? Do you remember
0: any of the others? I wrote one uh, early on about George, like with Mario Joyner, and they're at the diner, and Mario Joyner orders a salad, and George said, wow, I never saw a black person order a salad before. And... Th- that was just like a no-go. I wrote the episode. It was it was actually funny. I, that one I'm actually sure. was funny, but it was very, very sensitive. But also what's interesting is like the contest, the masturbation episode, and the outing, which I wrote, uh, were both episodes that had been uh, conceived of the season before – And NBC and Castle Rock were just not ready at that time to go for it. By the time the show started to kind of settle in, they were okay with us doing episodes like that also. So some of those episodes could have fallen by the wayside very easily. and You wouldn't have the contest or the outing or that whole season, really, which is a really great season, I think.
2: I love that you guys are bringing your own little passions to the show, too, like Dragnet. In your case, or exactly, Abner Costello and
0: Superman. Yes, yes. Abner Costello was a very important part of, of the show. Uh, There's uh, a yeah. character
2: named Sidney Fields for Christ's yeah.
0: sake. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. We and, were constantly doing uh, little allusions and references to things like that. We love doing that. Yeah, or That's that right. Newman is basically
2: Joe Besser. That Newman is sti- uh, is thinking <laughs> exactly, <Yes. laughs> exactly. Because exactly. the
1: Abner and Costello show, uh, that was, you know, like. Their movies so are like you know very hit and miss they'd have funny parts the the show is fascinating it's dark me. yes
0: it's, yes. it's
2: really dark and yes. surreal yes
0: it's I said I said it's, it's almost like a beckett play it really is i don't they know live what in this were- weird rooming house you know, they got the weird landlord. They don't really have jobs. They they're waiting for something. Yeah. You don't know what. Yeah. They're also much older in the TV show, which changes the perspective so much. Yes, when they're young in Buck Privates, they got their whole lives ahead of them. Now they're broken down bums in suits <laughs> with people living running. in a boarding house in one with one bedroom.
2: <laughs>
1: you and, know, and Abbott has a pot belly. Yeah.
2: Although, <laughs> yeah. they're also they're also victimized by sudden outbursts of violence. Co- constantly by erratic strangers. behavior by strangers <laughs> pounding yeah. on them and th- beating yeah, them. yeah
0: and i love that stuff i mean you when know. when the woman comes up to luke costello and, and hits him because she says how dare you remind me of somebody i hate you know <laughs> <That's> that, gold <laughs> those kind of moments we tried to have those non-sequitur type of moments in seinfeld as well and, for our own amusement but people seem to get a kick out of it as well
1: and i remember uh, Jerry at one point in one of the shows going boys
2: boys, boys. <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> yeah. well and some, yes, some stooges absolutely. too he Jerry would get between Kramer and and oh, yes. and, and, and George yeah. and do a, and do a mo thing
0: Yeah, absolutely. We did a we did a whole um uh, the the father's a mother. We did that bit actually uh, in one of the episodes. We did a lot of a lot of references to Abner Costello and to Superman and to Dragnet. I would say that that was the big three. Yeah, like the three of us
1: all grew up on the same television. Absolutely. Of like. The Bowery Boys, Abbott yes. and Costello, The Stooges. Yes. Um, yeah.
2: You oh, know, Mack and Meyer for hire. Yes. I mean, I mean like cheap, uh, absolutely cheap, cheap knockoffs yes. of yes. Abbott and Costello. Well, yeah. you
0: know, when I first moved to Hollywood, I lived off of Hollywood. I lived behind the Chinese theater, and I used to kind of wander around and I used to bump into Hunts Hall. Now, for me, wow. ah. Hunts wow. Hall was a, a gigantic star. So I was starstruck, but I, he lived in some apartment on Hollywood Boulevard. And I bump into him and I get a chance to talk to him and hang out with him and take a walk with him. And I got to be friendly with Hunts Hall for a while, which, again, as a Bowery Boys freak. It was, it was incredibly exciting to me. I remember he did a TV show late in life with Gabriel Dell. It was like they were both gangsters. I can't remember the name was of the show Was Chicago, it the Chicago Teddy Bears? The Chicago Teddy Bears. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I remember Escure. being so excited that that show was coming oh, up. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Art Matredo, right. We right, had him on right, this podcast. Right. Yeah, now, yeah. was he thrilled that you recognized him? yes. Yes, always. Anybody that I bumped into like that, because I was like, because of my father, uh, you know, kind of inculcating me with all that trivia, I recognized everybody when I would go, because at that time, even... um, uh, Schwab's was still open when wow. I first moved here, and you go to Schwab's, and Chuck McCann was there, and Timothy Carey, and all kinds of great, great characters names. were still hanging out. And so, I got a chance to talk to all those guys. I would go up to them and actually say hello because I was, I thought, I, I have to do that, you know, I have to take that uh, that leap. Now, with
1: when Seinfeld was at its peak, you know, much like I always say with airplane and naked gun. There were a million movies coming out that would watch the success of those movies and go, okay, we'll base it on other movies. and uh, Throw, we'll throw Leslie it. Nielsen
2: into it. Yeah, we'll yeah.
1: throw yeah. in Leslie Nielsen. We think we have the formula, but they never did. And there were a million Seinfeld knockoffs that it's like you could tell were watched by people who watch Seinfeld and thought, oh, okay, I get it. I get it.
0: Yes, I think that's right. I think that what happened was Seinfeld was kind of an accident. You know, I think that if the network executives – if it had been brought through the process the way most normal sitcoms do, it never would have made it through intact. I think the network executives loved the success of Seinfeld, but were very afraid of the content and the themes and the darkness. No morals, no hugging, you know. Yeah. and I think those things went very much against the grain for network executives. So when they would try to replicate the success, they would remove the very things that made it funny in the first place. Yeah. They also didn't have and Larry special. David. That made a they, difference they did, as
2: well. They didn't have a singular comic mind. There is only Behind. one Larry David. Yeah. That's true. Here's, yeah.
1: here's something jumping in another direction, Yes, but still concentrating on Seinfeld, which now – You you obviously knew uh, Michael Richards. Yes. Now, what do you think of everything that happened with him?
0: I feel, well, so much has happened since then in terms of that subject matter. Like that was the first time really somebody had been kind of caught on a video camera or a phone camera sort of doing something that was considered inappropriate. And it kind of took off on its own and caught fire on its own. I felt a couple of things. I felt that he was, as, you, as I think you'll sympathize and recognize or relate to, he was bombing. It was like late at night. He was bombing. He was desperate. He is not the most, you know, he, he's not the, the easiest person to just be himself. So as he's bombing, I think he's retreating into characters looking for some way out and wound up stumbling into this angry redneck character and spewing the N-word, which was a mistake. But I think if he had said, man, I was bombing and I I spewed this word out in desperation and it was a total mistake and I regret it, I think that would have probably been the end of it. But he kind of did this apology tour, which uh, almost exacerbated the issue more than it needed to be. And I think that wound up hurting him almost as much as the incident himself.
1: Because I remember that Seinfeld had him call up, um, I guess, Letterman. And while yes. Seinfeld was on and he apologized and his apology, the audience was laughing. Yes.
0: They thought, yeah. Oh, this is uh, Kramer doing a crazy exactly. thing. People don't know that Michael is not Kramer, that Kramer is a manifestation of a, an aspect of Michael. And Michael himself is a very introverted, uh, you know, reflect self reflective type of person. And I think, it was very awkward for him to be on David Letterman. It was very awkward for him to have to like even talk as himself. And then he got sort of caught up in the in the in the verbiage that sort of made things even worse. If Jerry had done something like that and had gone on David Letterman, he could have handled it because he knows how to handle that situation in public. I don't think Michael was equipped to do that and I think that's what you saw as somebody who really was not prepared. To handle the onslaught today, there would be PR people. There would be a whole, yeah. you know, there, there would be a whole plan in place before he would even make a public appearance. But in those days, he tried to be honest and, you know, and be very forthright about it, and it wound up backfiring on him. He's a very good person. He's a very nice person.
2: Just uh, on the subject of Larry David, before we jump off, uh, Larry, we're going all over the place. Uh, Curb your enthusiasm. Another show that you've been intimately involved with. And we could ask you anything about this, but we do want to make sure that we get to our friend, Bob Einstein.
0: Yes, yes. And, uh, and maybe be, you can be, say bef- a couple
2: of things about him.
0: Before I get to Bob, which I'm happy to do, and, and he was an amazing person, I, I felt very lucky to get a chance to work with him because, again, I was a fan of his from Office yeah. Judy on The sure, Smurf Brothers. <laughs> so really, he was one of the greats to me. Uh, but just another word about Larry and Kerber Enthusiasm. He was saying how he had the, ins- the instinct to hire non, non-sitcom non writers to sure. do Seinfeld. Well, in the same way, he came to me after doing the pilot of, of Curb, which I appeared in, and he said, uh, you know, once it was picked up for series, he said, you know, you should direct one of these. And I had never directed anything at that point. So even there, he had the instinct to say to me, I know you could do a good job with this. And he actually made me a director. Oh, we should so, point that and, out. Yeah, that's Yes. That's I important. Think that's a... Yeah, very important. It also goes goes to this this thing you referred to his instinct for unusual people that he thinks are going to actually make the thing special. And I really appreciated that both on Seinfeld and on Curb. He did two things for me that probably had the biggest impact on my adult life. Really, by, and you directed me those some of the best ones too. The
2: the, the nanny with Sherry O'Terry, and thank thank you for your service, and so many good ones. And I,
1: another thing that breaks a rule with Curb, is that I remember hearing people talk saying, "Well, if we've got this character who's like very abrasive and mean, we got to show something that uh, justifies it." Like the other people are mean to him, and it's he's getting back so we can root for him with curb your enthusiasm. Larry Davids, basically, he's a petty prick, a misanthrope, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he you yes. don't go, gee, I really like this guy. You go, no, he's a, he's a neurotic an <laughs> you know? erotic,
0: yes, yes, it's true. I think that, um. He he did something also though. Uh, in both Seinfeld and in Curb, he tapped into this dark undercurrent, this id, this id that we have that we don't like to really admit to. These sort of petty thoughts, these small-minded, vengeance-filled, you know, dark thoughts. These these this is what sort of drives him. He's able to sort of separate that and make that into stories. But that's tapped into something that the audience had never really had a chance to experience or, or react to in television comedy.
2: You, you've seen that guy. Kind of, we've talked about it on this show, it, for lack of a better term, neurotic Jewish humor. I mean, the humor of Woody Allen, Philip Roth, Bruce J. Friedman—all these you hadn't really seen it in primetime television.
0: Yes, that's true. To that that's point, that's true. It was a—it was still a fresh thing. But he found a way in both of those in both of those uh, series to make it palatable. Yeah, but to why? I was just going to say, the last thing I was going to say about that is just that what I found so shocking was, I think one of the big complaints about uh, Seinfeld initially was it's going to be about these Jewish single New Yorkers and who's going to relate to it. But that was one of the mistaken assumptions about the show. The more specific it was about their circumstances, the more people related to it. And the more people would come up to me and go, they'd be from Kansas or Iowa, and they'd go, hey, my best friend's just like George. Or I know a Kramer, you know, and it turned out that people, and then when I went uh, overseas and I'd be like in Israel or, you know, wherever these countries, there would be somebody, you got to meet this guy, he's just like George. So everybody had, around the world, has those archetypal people in their life. Right. And that was something you could not possibly predict. And now and,
2: they're selling the DVDs in Baghdad. Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. What, Next what? to mine, Kampf. <laughs>
1: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. What I always found fascinating about Seinfeld was that on the show, I mean, it's got such a Jewish uh, sensibility about it, such a Jewish identity, and yet the only Jewish character— is Jerry Seinfeld. Correct. I that's mean, correct. the Costanzas are the Jewish group <laughs> of right, Italians. Right. Played by Jews. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. All, all three yes. of them. Yes. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes that's right. very true. Right.
1: And you go, okay, we're supposed to believe these are Italians. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a buy there. Well, you know, again, in the New York sort of ethnic world, those things very much overlap. So, uh, again, for the rest of the country, it's it, it, it's it struck a chord somehow, you know, Um, and it made it seem very real and relatable. So they transcended their Judaism almost <laughs> immediately. you know <laughs> we We want to ask you about two two great Jews. one and one is
2: uh, Robert Zimmerman, which we'll get to. But, yes. but tell us something about Bob. Who, who, oh, about who, who, Bob Eisen. Absolutely, did, he did this show. We've done 200 of these, uh, Larry. He did this one one of our favorite episodes. He basically came in here and tore us apart. Yeah, he for an hit hour the ground.
1: Run, he hit the ground
0: running, and just <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, we barely had enough time we'll, to ask him a question. We'll send
0: you a link. It's fun. Uh, I, yeah, please do. I I don't know that he is, you know, God rest his soul. I don't think that he was ever not on. As soon as he hit the ground, he yes. was running. He would like walk <laughs> yeah. on he would walk onto the set and he'd be like grabbing you to tell you some long long and, and he was like you only not on stage. He would like commit to like a long dirty joke and he wouldn't let you leave until it was done. They're waiting for you on the set. They're ready to shoot, but he had to get to the punchline. He was he was one of a kind. He really—I mean—that family is, of course, comedy royalty. No course. question about it. They are. Between Albert Brooks and Bob and their father as well. Right. Uh, but I enjoyed, like I said, Officer Judy. I was a gigantic Super Dave fan. Us too. Um, yeah. He was a kind of a real comedy auteur. He was one of those people, so I—I I admired his work and I—I I had a great time. One of the great things about Curb is I got to work with a lot of uh, classic comedy people like Mel Brooks and Paul Mazursky and Bob Einstein. I got to direct them. I mean, that stuff is uh, dream come true stuff.
2: The kid from Brighton Beach who worshiped Mel Brooks is now directing Mel Brooks. I-
0: incredible. Surreal, right? incredible, yeah. yeah. Incredible experience, yeah. Now,
2: now, Gilbert got a kick out of, we, we, you know, talk a little <laughs> bit about Mastin Anonymous, but the, 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 yeah. a, again, a fascinating person for you to have collaborated with is, is Bob Dylan. And
0: oh, yeah. Another old Jew. He's Another yes! an old yes! Jew. Yes, and how the hell If you did think it, of him that way, then you get him.
2: Well, Gil- Gilbert really loved the fact that that, uh, that I found this in my research that he
0: went through a Jerry Lewis phase, <laughs> which is mind blowing. <laughs> that's where I that's yeah. where I come in. That's where I come in. During I got a call from his manager that you know he used to he's still on this what they call the never ending tour, and back in the eighties and the nineties and I guess the early two thousands when VHS was the medium on his tour bus he had a VHS machine and a TV and at one point you know in the in the early 2000s he got obsessed with Jerry Lewis and he would <laughs> he would like go do a concert get back in the bus and watch a Jerry Lewis movie till they got to the next town and he suddenly realized he wanted to do and this is how bob is he decided he wanted to do a slapstick comedy like like <laughs> Jerry Lewis <laughs> That's a whole new bit for you Gilbert Hey lady so, Yeah oh Hello. yeah uh,
1: and... Oh, Miss Mishnick!
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh... I'll
1: watch the gas
0: station for you. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he became uh, completely consumed with this idea his manager called and said do you want to talk to Bob and I was like for me I thought well, I'll have a meeting with Bob Dylan that'll be really exciting I can go brag to all my friends that I met Bob Dylan and I said sure I went to the meeting and he had a, uh, a, a boxing ring in Santa Monica a boxing uh, uh, gym and he had a little cubicle there And I met with him in the cubicle and he had a box and he opened the box. It was filled with scrap paper and he opened it up and all the scrap paper came out. It all had like different little expressions and lines and names. And he's like, I don't know what to do with all this. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like. I, you know, again, I, 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 picked up a piece of paper. I said, "Well, this could be the name of a character, and this could be a line that the character says." And then he's like, "You could do that?" Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. So we started, we started working on this thing. This kind of slapstick tv series that he was going to star in unbelievable and while i was trying to envision it in my mind like what was this going to be like you know but we wrote it we wrote an actual version of it it was very surreal i don't know how funny it was but we wrote it and we were told that hbo might be interested so we went to hbo and in those days i wore only pajamas I used to wear pajamas, like when I was on Mad About You, which is another time that we worked together, Gilbert. You were on Mad About You in the dog park.
2: Yes, yes, <laughs> it's all coming back. I to was the
0: show. I was the showrunner of Mad About You at that time, and uh, I used to wear pajamas. I wore them all the time because I'm Mad About You. I was working like seven days a week, eighteen hours a day. It was absurd. So I was like, "The hell with it." I was like Vincent Giganti. I was walking around <laughs> the gym, ah, yes. with, with pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> and so we decided we'd go to hbo and i said bob if you were to come to the meeting they would never say no to you they'll buy the pitch right in the in the office there and so he agreed to that so i showed up in pajamas he at that time was very into the western wear so he showed up in a beautiful cowboy hat and a floor-length black duster like something at a duel in the sun (laughs) that's what he looked like (laughs) And we we strode across the uh, the courtyard at HBO at that time in Century City and went into the meeting. And uh, he immediately walked past everybody in the meeting in Chris, in Chris Albrecht's office and went to the picture window at the end of the office and just stared out at the skyline, the entire meeting, never said a word. So I was like left pitching going, well, Bob will do this, Bob will do that. Right, Bob? And he would turn around and go, yeah. And he might answer, maybe. And despite the awkwardness of that meeting, they bought the show. <laughs> and we went out to the elevator and we were all ecstatic, except for Bob. He seemed very forlorn. And it's like, what's the matter? He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too slapsticky. And <laughs> so, wow. That, that ended that iteration of that project but i the idea of working with bob dylan i would have done it for the rest of my life frankly to tell you the truth and I, so go ahead I'm no sorry. i
1: just say i i wish to god that had been made a slapstick oh, comedy oh, with, the, starring bob the dylan. world
2: needs it <laughs> by the yeah. way that's the way he is in a meeting too Larry. yeah yes. <laughs> stares out the window and grunts <laughs> yeah am i
1: right about that uh yes yeah yeah
0: uh, but we wound up, we wound up working on it, continuing to work on it, and evolving, it yeah. evolved into this other thing that became Aston Anonymous. which is fascinating,
2: which and I have to tell our listeners to watch. I,
0: I remember this. the Man About
1: You I was on, I was a guy who goes up to Paul Reiser at the dog park, and and I'm asking to feel his dog's testicles, <laughs> <laughs> was, and and when it went, when it went into syndication, that was cut out.
0: Really? Yeah. Oh, That's funny. Yeah. That's hilarious. Actually, <laughs> I did not know that. I did not. I remember you doing that. I do remember. I do remember the dog's testicles. But now that you mention it, actually, we had some rough, we had some rough weeks there. You know, we were trying to get some laughs. It was hard sometimes.
2: <laughs> Larry, can I ask you a question from a fan? Certainly. This is something we do called Grill the Guest, which people can do on Patreon. Sean Lou. He says, hey, I got a question for Larry. Bob Sacamano is one of the great unseen characters in the history of television. Yeah, (laughs) Was there ever a temptation or a push by execs to hire an actor to actually bring him to life or portray him?
0: Well, first of all, as most of the people on Seinfeld... As it's true of most of the people on sci-fi, most of the characters, most of the characters' names, he's a real person. right? So Robert Sacamano actually exists. He's a friend of mine from Trump Village. I know him since third grade. So he's a real person. He was not happy, actually, to become Bob Sacamano, this kind of cult figure. Oh, <laughs> <It's> really? <weird. laughs> yeah, he was, a little, he was uncomfortable. Um, but um, th- I'm sure there was talk of it maybe at one point or another, uh, but it, it was one of those things that really worked. Newman originally was an unseen character. But we needed, to, we needed for story, we needed to see him. And Wayne came in and did such a great audition that Newman became a character on the show very organically. There was no real plan. But with Bob Sacramento, nothing really came up that seemed like it was, it was funnier to have him be the unseen friend than to actually visualize him.
1: Well, it's kind of like, you know, when they start bringing imaginary characters to life. Yeah. And it's like when they had Mrs. Columbo... <laughs> you know, you always love Peter Falk saying, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. my wife, uh yes. you know he, I she spilled something on and And uh, that was funny. This this yeah. person you heard Colombo talk about but then when she became real, it's like, you know, what the
2: fuck is this? Well, part of the culture of Seinfeld after a while was figuring out Lloyd Braun was a real person and Joe, DiVolo, yes, Joe DiVolo, DiVolo was a real yeah. person and Bob yes. Yes. Sacramento was a real person and so many. Yeah, yeah, yes. it's true. Uh, yeah. They were the writers' names people, would turn up
0: sometimes? Absolutely. Most of those people were very happy to, to be name-checked. Even if they were uh, be playing a psychotic character with their name, they were usually pretty thrilled about it.
1: Yeah. And they found a guy. I think he was a friend of Larry's, named
0: George Costanza. I think he's a friend of Jerry's. Actually, yeah, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. there's a Kenny and, that, well, and a Kenny Kramer well, too. Well, you must have known Gilbert. I'm sure you knew Kenny Kramer. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Is he still yeah. around? Kenny Kramer? He's around. Yeah. 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 That yeah. was a when weird... I was a, when, yeah. when I was a teenager. And I would go up to the Catskills. He uh, And I think, Gilbert, you could probably confirm this. He was one of the biggest comedians at that time. He was actually kind of an up-and-coming, very popular comedian and actually very arrogant in those days in the Catskills because he was kind of the big star, you know? He would do all those showcases and he was getting a name for himself. And I remember him very well from that period. That's when Marvin Braverman and... Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, I know that name. They were all doing the, the stand-up at that time. It was It was kind of fun in the Catskills at that point. Oh, well, was the other guy around too? The guy with Barbara Feldon, your friend?
1: Oh, uh, buddy Mantia. Buddy Mantia. Well, buddy Mantia. Yeah, yeah another well, guy. The, Marvin... the Untouchables. Yeah, yeah, the Untouchables. The Untouchables. Yeah. Yes, with yes. Bobby Allen. I saw
0: them. I saw them at the Brickman Showcase. You know, <laughs> uh, I was a bellhop at the Brickman, and I saw them perform at uh, at the Brickman Showcase. And, and Malzie Lawrence used to host oh, the Pine guy. the Pine Showcase. <laughs> There's a funny man. <laughs> Yeah, or watch
2: this segue. Speaking of comedy teams, since we just talked about the Untouchables, uh, and, and by the way, this is also on behalf of our engineer Frank Verderosa. We love the comedians.
0: Oh, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. This, there was some very funny stuff in there, and really funny. Uh, it just did not click for whatever reason. I don't know why. I know there was funny stuff. Those two guys were great together. It, it just did not appeal to anybody. I, I can't explain it really. I thought that it would be. Satisfying to an audience but it never really it never really coincided the, with the audience the
2: fun interest. idea of the mismatched comedy duo you know yeah sunshine and, and boys kind of both idea both those
0: guys are willing to be very dark about yes. their yes. their personas also yeah. yeah
2: and our friend Steve Weber does a nice turn on that on that show as well Steve Weber's great yes yeah. but we do want to ask you since Abbott and Costello came up and this one's for you Gil yeah have you seen the Bud and Lou TV movie
0: <laughs> with Buddy Hackett and Harvey Korman <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I, I of course I have uh but My not for a long favorite time favorite topic I, <laughs> We
2: would be remiss if we didn't ask Larry
0: the I haven't on seen comedy. I haven't seen Stan and Ollie have you seen Stan yeah, Laurel? good. T- no, I
1: haven't seen it yet. It's, I
2: want to. It's good. They take a lot of liberties with the, with the facts, which troubles yeah. me a little bit. But and purists, Ollie but is it's,
0: black. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, it's and Ollie's Stan is a Jack woman Su. now,
0: <laughs> yeah. a transgender woman. <laughs> yes,
2: it's it's sweet and sentimental, and the performances are great. It obviously has great affection for them, so it's worth yeah, worth yeah. seeing. Yeah,
0: Stan Laurel was another person. You know, a lot of these people, like Larry Fine and Stan Laurel. They were living out here in Los Angeles when I first came out here, and they were in the. Uh, I think Larry Fine was in the old, the uh, the uh, actors' home. Yeah, and they were around. And Laura was you, in you Santa know, Monica. Other comedians, other co- comedy writers would tell me that I went to visit Larry Fine, or he sent me a letter, or you know, you could really connect with those people. Now Joe Bolton, some of those guys back in New York, the WPIX guys, that was a different story. I was on a lot of those. My mother used to take me. To be the uh, in the audience in the peanut gallery, like for Bozo. This is great. And Sonny Fox. We had Wonderama. Sonny Fox here.
2: We had him on you the show. Did. We had him on oh the podcast. God. And we had Chuck McCann.
0: Yeah, that and,
2: was uh, Chuck,
1: Chuck McCann uh, was great. Tom Bergeron. Tom Bergeron uh, was on the show, and he told us that when he was a little kid, he looked up both Larry and Mo. And visited them.
2: Yeah.
0: Yes, well- they were accessible. They were accessible. And uh, it, it's, I think back to, uh, I remember, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard, like I said, you'd see Hunts Hall, you'd also see Aldo Ray. Waiting for a bus, you know. <laughs> and believe me, he wanted somebody to recognize him and he was thrilled, you know. We used him on Fridays. We would sometimes find these guys pretty down and out on Hollywood Boulevard and put them in a sketch on Fridays.
2: I lived in LA for a decade and it was one of the great sports when you had when you had days to kill, when you had nothing to do, is you'd go to the farmer's market and run into the guys like Louis uh, Gus. Remember Louis Gus? Yes. From of Moonstruck. Course. <laughs> yeah. You just see these people and feel compelled to run up to them and and, and yes. it, was like, it was like currency that you knew who they were.
0: Well, I was thinking on the way over here about comedians that... we Like, we know all the great comedians, and we could all probably give the same four or five great comedians. But I started thinking about comedians that only we might know at this point. Guys like Morty Gunty, sure. you know, who are who are like kind of popular. Or, you know who's a very influential comedian? I think on you, certainly on me as well, and I think on most modern comedy, doesn't get the credit really, is Jackie Mason. Oh, he is yeah. kind of a... He was a very important comedian for a very long time, and there's a lot of those Catskill guys who were really sharp and funny and original. Who are kind of we remember, and we've kind of used their influences to sort of grow it a little bit further. But some of those guys, Jackie Vernon. Oh yes. Know, yes, yeah, we talked you know, about all, Jackie
2: Vernon. On all this those show.
0: Ed Sullivan, those Ed Sullivan comedians who would be on, like uh, Timmy Brown. Oh yeah, do you remember that, him? Yes, Sh- Timmy Rogers. Timmy Rogers. Timmy Timmy Rogers, Rogers. yes, thank you. Everybody wants to
1: go to heaven, but nobody (laughs) wants to die. And then he would, and and with each punchline was, oh yeah, oh yeah,
0: yeah. That was his punchline. That was his catchphrase. London Lee, London Lee was great. Saw him many times. The rich kid, the poor little rich kid. That was his hook. Uh, About his uh, his, his parents were wealthy. How About Morty Storm.
1: Oh, that's right,
2: Storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sure. what this show is dedicated to more than anything, Larry. We had yeah. we had Billy
0: Saluga Gene, here, Gene Baylos, Gene Bailos.
2: Oh my
1: God, yes, very funny yeah, man. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Those yeah, old Friars loved them all. Oh, Mal Malzy Lawrence is brilliant.
0: Malzy Lawrence was almost like he was the hip. He was too hip for the room in those days. Dick really. Capri is another one. Dick Capri oh was great. Oh my God, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah, Dick, Freddie, Dick, Freddie Roman, all funny, Freddie Roman all funny, was funny very people. big at that time. Dick
1: Capri is a case. Of an Italian, who grew up, uh, you know, in the whole Jew thing, yeah. and he knew more Yiddish and it was more <laughs> Jewish than I could ever be.
0: Yeah, and he yeah, was he like was. an
1: Italian, but he grew up in the Catskills.
0: There was there was actually one. It was interesting because the Catskills, when we were kids, was obviously a Jewish enclave, but there would be like one Italian hotel, and it yes. was known that that was the Italian hotel. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't I can't remember the name of it right now, but it was the one Italian hotel that was up there. But yeah, there was also like Myron Cohn. Sure, he oh was, my uh, god, yes. Y- you know, Pat-, those Pat Cooper guys are was kind around then. Now. Pat Cooper.
1: Henny Youngman, I great. love. Henny Pat, Youngman. Pat
0: Henny Youngman was on Fridays, actually, which was a great thrill to, to be able to work with him, yeah. He was uh, he was fun.
2: You tell me one other podcast in the world, Larry, where they're talking about Morty Gunty and Officer Joe Bolton.
0: <laughs> it's this- a shame. It's a shame there isn't more. <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> and what Western sca- civilization is built on these things.
1: <laughs> what, what scares us is we'll say to people... Groucho Marx, and they'll have no fucking idea who Groucho oh, Marx yeah. was. So they definitely don't oh. know
2: who Jackie Gale was. Yeah.
0: Exactly, exactly. Jackie Gunther. Gale, who I had lunch with. I wrote material for Jackie Gale. Oh. I wrote material for a lot of these guys also, by the way. Hilarious. But you're absolutely right, Gilbert uh, and Frank. I mean, that, that world is... Is disappearing very rapidly, I often, as a kind of an informal thing, I will take a poll on the show that I'm working on, and I'll ask some of the younger people, not even that young, but I'll ask them about Jack Benny or Bob Hope or George Burns and invariably they have no idea who they are or oh. they might have some vague sense of who they were. So here were these guys who were world celebrities, the biggest stars in the world, completely forgotten by this time. So it's a good perspective to keep about fame, you know, it's it's very fleeting and, even for someone like like those guys, you know.
1: And and you know what was interesting? There was an episode of that that anthology series Amazing Stories that had to do with creatures from outer space gathering up forgotten celebrities. Yeah, I know the one you're and, talking about. And they bring them to outer space where
2: they're stars. You know what gives wow. me hope? What gives me hope is that General Butt Naked knows
0: who Vic Morrow is. <laughs> <laughs> also a great show, by the way. Combat. Combat. Fantastic, fantastic show. He's
2: got great taste. He's Maybe he's he a warlord, does. but he's got great taste.
0: Yes. He does. He really does. <laughs>
2: I'm let this you got to you you
0: tip your hat. You got to tip your hat to him.
2: Larry, we could do six hours with you easily. We didn't get to Religious or The Dictator or uh, hardly got I'll, into Bruno. I'll Come back.
0: This was great fun. I really enjoyed it. Please uh, do. Uh, it's great to see Gilbert again. It's great to meet you, Frank. Pleasure and I Pleasure's thank you mine. Both so much. Susie Essman sends her
2: love, by the way. I wrote to her and I said, hey, you got a question that we can throw out to Larry that'll surprise him? And she said, I don't, but tell him I love him and I miss him and he's a genius. Uh.
1: Thank you, thank you very much. yes yeah, this very sweet. this is one of those interviews that's too easy,
2: and it yeah, spoils right. you, brothers. Gilbert would be happy to just talk about Officer Joe Bolton and Captain uh, uh, Jack McCarthy
0: <laughs> for oh, three I could, hours. I could discuss them for hours and hours. Absolutely, <laughs> I was very, Becker. I was, I didn't know, I didn't even believe they weren't. I always figured he was a real cop. I mean, that really yes. threw me. <laughs> you know, when Officer Joe Bolton was not really a cop, and he would warn you about not doing the stuff that the Three Stooges did, and but they were also the behind this, like Jack McCarthy was also like the voice of the Thanksgiving Day parade. Or yeah. he would be the announcer on the for the news, you know, the voiceover announcer. So those guys were like doing like 14 different jobs also, while they were also the sure. on screen hosts for the, for the kids' shows.
2: Well, you're a Superman guy. You must have loved that Bud Collier, the voice of, of Superman, was also the host of To Tell the Truth.
0: And which always had freaked only me one out. leg, that fascinated me. <laughs> freaked yeah,
2: exactly. me out as a kid.
0: Freaked me out. If you got to see him walk, you go, "Oh my God, what's wrong with?" Him? And that that <laughs> stuff used to really flip me out. Actually, about uh, Bill, about uh, C- uh, Bud Collins. Bud Collins. Oh, no, Bill Collins. Bill Collins. Yeah, Bill Collins. Bill Collins.
2: Yeah. Mil- Mel Brooks does a whole bit about oh, Bill Collins, yes. one leg,
1: where he oh says Bill Collins is walking over to him limping, and he thought that <laughs> Bill Collins was doing a Jerry Lewis
2: imitation, so he started walking like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh Larry this was great fun. Oh, Thank, gonna you, Mike. Thank you. I'm going to tell our listeners find the comedians with Josh Gad and, and Billy Crystal which is great and and fun and they have to see Religious which my wife and I just watched and we get you back we'll ask you a lot of uh, questions about that stuff.
0: Anything at all man it was great. It was really d- fun and yeah we could do this anytime you want and I'd like to do it in New York and so I can see you guys in person. Please too.
2: please and come. Dangerous world of comedy. Yeah which is wild and must be seen. I, Thank oh, you so I'm much.
0: Netflix, February
2: fifteenth. Did I see a woman in a fight in the background? You know what I'm talking about? When you're in the car, when you're in the limo with uh, yes, yes, with uh, uh, d- yeah, d- there's, Duke there's Murphy. There's some fighting going there's on. Someone, yeah, that was being in Liberia I in the background. while you're shooting this thing? Yes, yeah.
0: unbelievable. I kept on trying to get my DP to shoot out the window. He, we, kept on, uh, we had like a little extra like a little battle there. And finally he looked out the window and sure enough, right at that moment there was that fight going on. You're a brave man,
2: and it's in, it's incredible television that has to be seen.
0: So thank you. We'll thank do it so in New much. York next time. Absolutely. Great to see you both. Gilly, thank you again. He's gonna sign off. Thank you, Larry.
2: So uh this has been
1: Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the guy who's written everything Larry Charles <laughs> Thank <laughs> you Larry. Thank
0: you
1: Larry Thank you See you soon casă Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Godfrey
0: and Frank Santa Padre. With audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn. <laughs>
2: am de toate în casă să nu
1: răntai mei dușman eu cum iubesc de casa și pe mai copii și când mă întorc
2: acasă e o fată de bucurie
0: iubirea ca să cu trăi